137 PM's Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern day man. Torre, welcome to Live from the Bar Cart. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, so excited to talk to you. You know, uh, we talk, try to talk to people that have accomplished a lot in their lives and are multi-hyphenates, and you are definitely one of those. I mean, author, journalist, writer, host. Um, is there anything else I missed on Podcaster. that? Podcaster. Um, uh, are, are we going to throw, like, film in there, maybe? Direct, uh, director? I don't know if I'm going to become a director, but I would like to become a television creator. That is the future that I see um, looking at people like, you know, Issa Rae and Cheo Coker and Donald Glover. And I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> I can do that. I mean, that. so much of the career has been like, I could do that. <laughs> and then like clawing toward getting into that. Um, but I mean, a big thing for me has been like, let me set a goal and then work toward that goal. And I think a lot of times folks get wrapped up in the day what needs to happen today and i try to be looking at what do what do i need to accomplish today so that my goal is close i'm closer to my goal 6 or 12 months from now or even 2 or 3 years from now and i love when i can spend time doing something that is pushing the rock up the hill for 2 to 3 years from now um so yeah, and I hate getting sucked into today. I had to do things that only mattered for today. Right. You know what I mean? I think that's a good point. Kind of the long game. A lot of people. I mean, there's like there's a school of thought that's like find out what you're passionate about and do that every single day until you're the best at it. Well, there, and then there's like the yeah. jack of all trades. Try to try as many things as possible and be good at all of them. Well, there's something else. I mean, I don't know if I heard this from Gary or from Tim Ferriss. But I know it's one of the two of them, but they, whichever it was, it talked about offensive and defensive work or projects. Defensive being that somebody else is telling you, you need to do X. Fine. But offensive is when you are thinking of things and executing those things yourself. Projects that came from your mind. And I look at that like being able to move without the ball, right? Like the player who can move without the ball will get shots, right? Um, and I try to have as many offensive projects going as possible, right? Because then I'm defining my future. I don't want to get locked into somebody else gave me something and I'm mean, gonna, you know, like, like I could do, I could do short assignments on crap stories all day long, you know, and make a couple hundred dollars here and there. Do, and it's fun, and you get wrapped up into. I do want to be one of the thousand journalists commenting on the latest Trump whatever, but it becomes almost like, can I, like, like you want to go to the party because you're gonna have a great time tonight, but. A year from now, you won't even remember that party, but you will know my book just came out or I finished my screenplay. It's the, in, the big projects. Yes. I would, I would uh, nine times out of 10, I would rather skip the party to go home and work on my book or work on the screenplay or whatever it is that I'm trying to build for the future. Mm -hmm. Do you find when you have a lot of projects, it's it's hard to kind of like prioritize which one is most important or you just naturally know how to I, spread yourself out? I do find I spend time trying to figure out what 
should I do next? And I might get into a 20 or 30 minute bottleneck of like, I have three projects. What do I do now? Like, what do I spend the next two, three hours on? Um, and I'm trying to figure out a way past that. I spend a lot of time planning. Like every Sunday night, I'm looking at, here's all the projects that I'm working on, long term and short term. What do I need to do to push the rock up the hill for each of these projects? This one, maybe I don't have any time to do anything on it this week, but this one, okay, I need to do this, this, and this to really button that up. Um, won't see the fruits of that for three to six months maybe, but you know, if I push this forward, okay, that rock gets up the hill a little bit more, and now I can, you know, use Wednesday and Thursday to push another rock up the hill a little bit more. You know, got to do something on the podcast every week, so I'll do this. Then. And really think about how I can spread my time and accomplish many, many different things. My friend says, you know, oh, you know, you want to go to lunch? I'm like, not really. I'd rather be at my desk working on my book. That's a two. That's two hours that I'm not going to be working on. Would it be fun? Probably. But I mean, like, I, I could do that all that. So I try to push away, now push away the distractions now. So there's a lot of overviewing of, okay, am I moving toward the goal with the book for this year, the book for next year, the podcast, the show I'm trying to pitch? I mean, look, I have a family now. I got two kids and a wife. So there are daily things that I have to do. I have to engage with them every day. I have to clean up the house every day. Um, but it's when your I was, other job, yeah, yeah. It's but a when I was dad young, father job, yeah, I mean, a dad husband job, yeah. But when I was younger, uh, and I didn't have a family, I I'm working on a story. I'm just doing the story. I'm not doing the dishes. I'll do the dishes in three days when the story is done. I don't clean up the house. I'm working on the story. I would just sit there and work on the story until I fell asleep, you know, get takeout, throw the dishes in the sink. I'll get to it when this is done. You know, there would be times when I haven't left the house in three days because I would just sit in there zoning on the story um, or the book or whatever. I really enjoyed that. You know, I love just hyper focused. Yeah, just dialing into the yeah. work and dealing with that and. I find that fun. Did you um, always know you wanted to be a writer? Was that something you were passionate with? I was passionate about being a writer in my teens and more so in my college years. And so when I moved to New York, I was focused on trying to become a writer. And that was really about meeting people who could get me assignments, uh, give me assignments, and just trying to get into this world i would go to magazine parties and see like who are the editors and like how you doing you know i'm a writer would love to talk to you sometime would love to pitch you something you know and just be really forward uh with people who could help me you know i mean i remember i got into the new york times because i had befriended a publicist who said okay i'll introduce you to the music editor at the times lovely guy um, who I wanted to write, I think this was 94, and I wanted to write a profile of Snoop Dogg. And they did not understand Snoop Dogg at all. And they definitely thought that Snoop Dogg was beneath the New York Times. And I called this guy 
every day for a month and talk to him. This was 94, you said? 94. So before, okay, before all the, all right, so it's still new. Yeah. But still, it, it's like saying, uh, who's Emin, Emin him who? Who's this? Sure, like, but I mean, you know, they saw themselves in an elevated way. So I had to f- create the relationship, which we did, and we're still friends to this day, but also to explain to him on his terms why Snoop would be valuable for the New York Times. So not just he's the dopest rapper, but digging into, well, his people are from Mississippi and, you know, moved to Southern California in the Great Migration. And you can hear that twang and that Southern drawl in him. So there's a larger sort of sociological point here. And that sort of convinced him like, okay, like if we're going to talk about him in that kind of depth, um, then that makes that makes a New York Times story rather than he's the hottest rapper out. That's not a New York Times story. So, I mean, just sort of figuring out in talking to him over and over and over, how do I shape this idea into a time story? And I think that is your voice. You when you in your writing, I think yeah. what you just like. How do you develop that? How does a writer develop their voice like that? Mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, God, I don't know. I'm not sure how I developed a voice. I mean, just writing a ton. Is it just about what you're passionate about, or just write a, like write a ton from about everything? Well, just, Take any job that comes when you're starting off. Well, like, when you're writing, when you write a lot you start to get into here's how I like it to sound and that gets you into having a voice. I mean, I don't know that, I mean, I know that I have a voice that a lot of people would probably recognize my work without even if you erase the byline, but I don't have like a way of thinking that I'm like, all right, let me get into my voice. Like, let me get my game face on. Like, well, now it comes natural. Yeah, I, I never had to think about my voice. I mean, when you get away from copying other people, I mean, when I was younger, I could copy other people. I could copy the voice of Didion or Greg Tate or you know Baldwin, whoever. So that helped me start to understand the differences. I mean, you know, they talk about an important exercise for younger writers to write out somebody else's work. Like, don't use the typewriter. Don't use the computer. Use a pencil or a pen and write out somebody else's paragraph or a couple paragraphs. And it'll help you see a little more closely what they're doing and how it works and what their voice is. Um, But, I mean, you know, I've just always been good at just ask. Just keep asking. Just keep Asking, asking, asking. Do you want to work together? Do you want to work together? Just asking. I did a panel with Rakim at the Congressional Black Caucus a few years ago. Came off the panel. I'm like, you know, you are the greatest MC in my book. If you ever want to do a book, you know, please let's talk about it. And he's like, well, actually, we're looking for a writer right now. He was not the first rapper who I asked, hey, let's do a book together. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it just every, you know, if I go to Spotify and I'm like, 
hey, let's do a podcast together. Or if we go to, you know, a magazine, you know, hey, you know, I could, I could do a podcast for you, or we could do this, or we could make a TV show together. Or just, and a lot of these ideas get knocked down, or you know, in media, everyone says I love you, so everything is like that's a great idea, let's do it. And <laughs> Nobody's then, ever like that sucks. Yeah, nobody <laughs> ever says that sucks, and you know, but and then and nothing comes of it. It's just fine, but just constantly throwing out hooks and and you know coming up with the, with good ideas and then asking hey you want to you want to collaborate on this you want to work together on this we should do it you know and and even if only 10 or 20 percent of your good ideas get caught uh you can make a career out of that what about getting published how would you go about you know if we've got a lot of people listening that are you know for work, books yeah working on their own projects and let's say, I mean, I'm mean, sure there's plenty of guys that have manuscripts and have ideas for great books, and there's only so many literary agents and publishers that will put those books out. How would you say, you know, the best way that you did it or advice for those that are trying to do it? Well, you got to have a, an agent. You don't just send it to the publisher. Uh, you got to meet an agent. You can cold send to an agent. That's not the best way, but if you don't know any, you you can Google and figure out here's 10, 20 agents and send it to them. They do have somebody who's reading through the slush pile to make sure there's not something great in there. Um, it, you know, it starts with that. And then once you create the relationship with the agent, then they would send it out to publishers. You don't have to finish the book. You could. If you do, that's not bad, but you don't have to finish the book before you're pitching it to folks. You really want to have an idea about the book and what it's about, um, a really strong concept around what it's about. Uh, that will get it sold more than writing the whole book. So it's all about being to deliver the, the almost like a sales pitch, deliver the book and the idea behind the book. Yeah. 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 Um, talk to me about the podcast, the Teray Show. Yeah, how's uh, you got, so you did it, and now you're moving. You're under the Young Turks, or it was yes. started with them, or no? We've oh. moved over to the Young Turks, mm -hmm. who have been great. Um, I mean, you know, I'm trying to do in depth one on ones with you know really amazing black people, just dealing with how'd you become successful, you know, as a singer, as a rapper, as an actor, as a director, as a producer, whatever, um, as a comedian. So, you know, we'll talk to singers about how do you sing? How do you practice? How do you prepare for the stage? How do you prepare your voice? Uh, you know, how'd you do that specific song? You know, actors, you know, how do you do it? You know, um, I mean, we have a great one with Zadie Smith on how to write. Um, you know, I I've had great fun talking to comedians about how to write a joke. And they all will say, you don't just write a joke. Like you don't just sit down and write something. You take something from your life and you make that into the funny. And maybe it's hues close to what really happened. Maybe you add stuff onto it. But if you are pulling from real life, uh, then you really have something. And uh, I've definitely heard a lot of people talk about dealing with reality is harder and more valuable than dealing with just making something up. And I think the value of the imagination is a bit over uh, overwrought and that we can take the real things that happen in our lives 
and make really valuable and interesting art out of that. Yeah. And you've talked to me some amazing Spike Lee, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Evander Holyfield. Uh, I was looking at the list. It was just very impressive. Um, all people, Kendrick Lamar, uh, Vivica Fox, all people that have found success in, in their in their life. Do you, do you find, you know, I don't know if it's true if there's like a, if success is bred or success is earned or like, did you find a commonality amongst these people no matter what field they were in? Um, or do you still, as you talk to them? Well, I mean, you know, there's not necessarily one commonality, but a lot of people seem to really believe in themselves. And I think you can see that a lot. I see it a lot when I'm playing tennis. Like, I can kind of tell, like, he doesn't really believe in himself. And he really does believe in himself. And you can just see it in somebody's body language. And it shapes the things that you do when you're doing your thing. And self-belief can be manufactured. You can sort of lie to yourself. If you're a person who's like, I just lack self-confidence, you don't have to accept the thoughts that are given to you. You can control the thoughts in your mind. I mean, like, I don't really allow a lot of, I don't really allow much in the way of negative self-thought in my mind. And there was a period in my life um, when I was really actively working on this. And if I had, if a negative thought about myself crossed my mind, I would pinch myself in the back of my neck, like really hard, so where it hurt. Don't allow negative self-thoughts. And you get into the habit of thinking, I can do it, you know, I'm gonna win, I'm very positive, I'm, you know, I can handle this, I can handle anything, and that's, pretty much how I look at things like I, I go into almost anything like I can win this I can handle this I can do this like you know I'd be in a car tipping off the side of a of a mountain and going like I can find a way out of this I can I can figure it out I can figure it out just the internal self-talk has to be positive that doesn't mean that you're never constructively critical of yourself but you have to believe in yourself, right? I mean, freaking Kanye. First time I interviewed Kanye, I go to his house. And he had a his first album was out. He had a place in this in this high rise in Jersey, and it takes him like an hour to get dressed while I'm waiting for him. It's like which polo shirt? Oh. <laughs> and I'm walking around the house, and there's on one wall a gigantic poster of Kanye like in performance, like bent over, like screaming into the mic, you can tell he's on stage. And when he finally came out, I was like, um, um, what, why do you have a poster of you on the wall in your house? And he said something brilliant. I have to cheer for me before anyone else can cheer for me. And I, I'm not encouraging anyone listening to this to put an actual poster of themselves on the wall in their house, but if you have like a poster of yourself on the wall in your mind kind of thing to where you super believe in yourself, that is a really powerful driver. I mean, so much of it is just, I believe in myself. You're right. That's a, it's funny because he's got such a, you know, uh, it's either like people love him or hate him, you know, and, but you cannot take away the fact that he thinks and he believes in himself 
and he's you know he's an amazing entertainer because and you can't take that away from him and the belief in that is evident i think it's a big powerful tool you're right um i wanted to go a little bit uh and talk about kind of the the evolving world of, of journalism from when, when it was to what it is today do you think um journalists um have a difficult task in reporting today in in today's world you mean like music journalists or like um, like no, more more of like journalists. political journalists and current events. And um, uh, there was a there was an art there was a, a a poll that came out from Ipsos that they conducted that said um, uh, a third of American people distrust the news media. Well, that seems low. I mean, like yes, it's very difficult. It's very difficult dealing with the world when not just the president but the entire right wing is saying we cannot trust media, and we don't even have to give evidence for that we just say we just don't trust media and I'm always like so what are your news sources if you say you just don't trust media but we have a large swath of people who just say they just don't trust us so then media is talking to like-minded people or at least people who are willing to be objective um I mean, that's very difficult. The physical danger that journalists are in now because of the things that Trump says is very frightening. Um, I don't worry about something happening to me specifically, but I would not be surprised if something happened to one of my friends, which is a horrible thing to think of. Um, I mean, you know, it's quite insane that Trump and his folks have gone on this media is the enemy of the people sort of thing like tell me a little bit about some projects coming up and what uh, we can expect from you tell me about the book well you all i mean i'm working on i'm working with rakim on his autobiography um which should be out this fall i'm also working on another book that'll be out next year and it's an interesting sort of journey because after i did my book about what it means to be black, I noticed a lot of white people when they would say, hey, what's your book about? And I would tell them and I would get this look in their face like, oh, like, that's nice. It's not for me. And I wanted to do something that was more universal than than something that has like white people going like, not for me. So I said, what would be a more universal subject? And this was the first time in my writing career that I really tried to think, what does the audience want and need rather than just what do I want to do as an artist? And I think it's a little bit more of a a valuable approach to think about what does the audience want and need and how can I serve that rather than just let me just artistically think about what I feel like doing. So I started off with something as universal and broad as I could. Modern masculinity. What does it mean to be a man today? And partly the idea was based on, you know, women have changed significantly from our mother's generation to our wives' generation. Men have changed less, but we have had to change in response to the women around us changing and growing. So where are we as men? And we we don't have that conversation. So what's going on? Started to dig into that and quickly realized this is an incredibly broad subject and the book will have to be like 800 pages and still be shallow. 
and I don't want that. So I started narrowing it, it down and it became a bit of like product testing in that at first the book was, okay, men around marrying age and how do they behave? Because I know that most book buyers are women. So I'm trying to think about what does the book buying audience want? Men, why do they get the, so first, so the questions became, why do men choose to get married? Why do they choose to get divorced? Why do they choose to cheat? Started interviewing guys. Quickly found that the decision on why you marry is incredibly unique. The decision on why you divorce is incredibly unique. But the decisions around cheating are, they're more common. They are more shared. And I also thought about when I've, the four times in my life, I don't know if you've had this moment, where you're standing around talking to the guys, your friends, like, you know, you know everybody, you know their wives or their long-term girlfriends or whatever. And then one of the guys like, all right, enough about the Mets. Let me tell you about my girlfriend. Like, what? I got, I got a new girlfriend. We were up in the Hilton last night, blah, 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 blah. The and, single guy or the married guy? No, a married guy <laughs> telling us, I got a girlfriend. Like, you know, let's talk about it. And we're like, wow, like we know your wife. We like your wife. You know, maybe you have kids like, you know, but you're doing your thing like, wow. And those conversations are very electric. And I was like, can I bottle that into a book? Can I take this sort of a crazy taboo subject and put it in a book that's still literary and intelligent? And I was like, this is a great idea. This is a needed, valuable thing that people will think and talk about. Like, why do men cheat on their wives? And there have been books about it throughout history, and Esther Perel wrote something that touches on this recently. But, you know, I wanted to do it my way. And um, I think I'm working on I'm going through that. And when can we expect that? That'll be next year. Oh, cool. So when I finish the Rakim book, then I'll start finishing that. I've been working on that one for four or five years, but I've done done the research. I talked to about 70 guys who said they screwed around or are screwing around right now. <laughs> and uh, I'm surprised guys went on the record. I'm, I'm assuming nobody's on the record. They're all anonymous. <laughs> they gave me a f- one name. Uh, you know, I don't even know if that's a real name, but... They gave me amazing stories, and more than the stories, they gave me reasons and perspectives on why they do what they do. And um, I think it'll be the kind of book that women will pick up and read and throw across the room <laughs> and then run across the room and pick it up and like keep That's reading it. and then call their friend and like, this book's making me so making me so bad. You have to read this. <laughs> um, but you know, it it really came from thinking how do I write something that a lot of people will find a connection to and will want to dig into um, rather than just, I have an idea. And um, uh, the Touré show is available everywhere. People listen to podcasts. Can anywhere, just search the Touré show? Yeah, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find Touré show. And Hell yeah. Cool. Okay, two final questions. Yeah. Question number one, um, if you can go back and tell young Touré and also – advice to our audience of, of hustlers and grinders trying to make it themselves out there. Is there any point or anything you would tell yourself, hey, don't do this or 
this work, do that. Mm. Um, don't be so X, Y, Z or like. Uh, well, you know, more education is always better. And I went to graduate school for creative writing and I left after one year because Karis One wanted me to work with him on his autobiography. And so we traveled through Europe and then we spent a lot of time together in Jersey and the book ended up not coming out, even though it's incredible and it's in my computer and it freaking drives me nuts. What? This incredible uh, book. Do we is... want to go down that rabbit hole? Why it didn't come out? Um, I mean, I can't really talk about it, but it's not really an interesting story of why it didn't come out. I mean, it's it's just it's just you know just people certain people lost interest in the project in general. But that's that's neither here nor there for for us to understand. But just. I'm glad I did that, even though it didn't come out. But looking back, more education would have been better for me uh, than not. If I had gone and gotten an MBA or something else to enhance me professionally, that would have been better. I mean, basically, I was having a lot of success as a magazine writer. I was constantly working. Phone was constantly ringing. Go interview Lauren, DMX, you know, Eminem, whoever. And it was fun. And I was making a living. Um, maybe if things hadn't been so good, I would have thought things could be better if I get another degree and a better degree. And I mean, I always think about when people who are in their 20s come to me, like, you're not really going to be able to, to pursue, it's going to be much more difficult to pursue an advanced degree once you have children, once you have, you know, a mortgage or whatever that you've got to make each month. But when you're in your 20s, you can, you know, I, I can't, I couldn't just pick up and go to the Iowa Writers School right now or something like that. But like, when I was in my 20s, I could have, you know, and, uh. When when I encounter people in their 20s and they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, you know, you in your 40s would be like, get more education because it generally, generally will lead to making more money down the line and being more in demand. Mm. Right. That's a great point. No, but with, with education comes bills and money, too, which is always, always a challenge and debt. Yeah, but, but, but it's a, it's you an can pay, you get paid more down it, the line because of that. Education. It's an investment in yourself. Yeah, and I understand that it costs a lot. I mean, it took a long time for me to pay down my college loan. I remember, I think I remember paying the last, writing the check for the last part of my Columbia bill, and was like, Hallelujah! That I'm not going to see this. You know, we want another hundred dollars every freaking month or whatever it was, um, but. Uh, I think it's really valuable. Yeah. And then finally, uh, I've, I think that there's no great success without great risk. Can you look back on your career and think of a time where you took a, a big risk uh, and you, you, you know, quote unquote, bet on your abilities, bet on your skill and it paid off? Well, I mean, you know, I didn't look at it. A, I didn't. I mean, the media writing world is a little different, but I mean, I... I left college after my junior year, probably because I wouldn't, I didn't see it as a risk. I saw, I don't really understand why I'm doing this liberal, liberal arts education dance. How does this lead to a job and a career? And nobody around me could explain it. I now, now if somebody 
in college asked me now, I could explain it to them why they should stay in school. Um, you are building up the different parts of your mind. You are learning how to learn. So, no, you're not going to need math or, you know, advanced German or, you know, the history of South America when you get in the real world. But you are learning how to learn and you are exercising the different parts of your mind just the same way as you go in the gym and you do lats and you do squats and then you do, you know, tricep curls. So you're working different parts of your body working different parts of your mind in the liberal liberal arts uh, education dance. So you should do that. But I didn't understand that and nobody around me could explain it to me. So I left. That was a big risk. But I was definitely like, I will go to New York and make it happen and, you know, write some articles and write some books and make it happen. Um, I mean, one thing that's been really valuable for me, going a little off your question, is mentors right and a lot of people come to me and they say will you be my mentor i don't know what that means i don't know how to respond to that like if i say yes then are we in a relationship where like you know like like will you be my girlfriend like i, I don't know what that means and the people who have been mentors to me i never used the m word i never asked them to be my mentor I identified somebody who's older than me, who seemed wise, who I genuinely liked them as a person, and I went to them over time and just started asking them questions. How do you become a writer? How do you get into TV? What is the difference between a TV host and a TV guest? You know, how do I get better as a writer? Whatever. And they would answer the questions because older people love to impart their knowledge to younger folks. So when you have somebody who's 15, 20 years younger than you asking you a genuine, real question about how do I do that thing that you're really good at? And like, oh, I can explain to you and you're really going to listen. Well, let me tell you. And you can really soak it in from them. And you can't get it all in one meeting, but you know, I can think of like three or four men uh, who just, you know, were older than me, who I just sort of started asking them questions and they just were answering them. And we had a mentor mentee relationship. And if I had a big question, I would call them and, hey, how do we you know? How do I deal with this? What would you do about that? But never use the M word. I never asked them, will you do this for me? Like, just, just, just pick somebody and just start asking questions and just listen to the answers. And that, I don't even look at it as a mentor thing. I'm just trying to get knowledge from somebody who's older and has already been there. Um, that has been a huge help in the learning curve in, uh, in media. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. I don't know what I'm giving to them beyond like an ego stroke of like <laughs> That's I'm, what you're giving them. <laughs> I'm young. Well, there you. Go. I mean, I'm younger than you. I'm willing to listen to you. I mean, I I don't really feel like I gain anything when a younger person comes to me and says, "Hey, how do I get into this?" But I mean, I'm happy to talk to them and to give back to them. Tori, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good luck Fun. with all your projects. Once again, new book this year, new book next year, and then the Tori podcast is out now, Tori yes. Show. Yes. And maybe some TV sometime soon. Maybe. <laughs> Where can we follow you on socially? 
Um, at Torre on Twitter and at Torre Show on Instagram. Excellent. This is 1.37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Barkhart is a Gallery Media production.